Hi everyone, this is Holly Herndon. I'm Matt Dryhurst. And you're listening to Interdependence. Welcome to the Interdependence Podcast, where we host conversations with some of the people we think are shaping 21st century culture. You're listening to the free version of this podcast. If you would like to hear the full version and support this series, please visit patreon.com interdependence. This podcast is ad-free and only possible through patron support. Thank you. Hi, Nathan. Hey, Nathan. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I'm coming along. It's cold, but I'm trying to stay warm. That's good. It's cold in Boulder, Colorado. That's where you are, right? That's right. Yeah. Nice. I kind of want it to be cold in Boulder, Colorado. Yes, it needs to be cold there. (laughs) This is a place that lives up to its stereotypes, but it, it, some days it's very cold. Some days it's very warm. You never know which one's going to come. We've already had snow uh, and we probably have some warm, sunny days ahead. So that sounds blissful for everyone. That sounds blissful. And so we don't botch it. Would you mind doing a brief introduction of yourself for our listeners? Yeah. Uh, I. The reason I'm in Boulder is I, I teach at the University of Colorado, Boulder, and uh, I'm in the media studies department. And there I run something called the Media Enterprise Design Lab. And over the years, I've been involved in helping to support and develop more democratically owned and governed online platforms, uh, especially under the banner of platform cooperativism or exit to community. Um, basically, I'll take anything I can get that uh, will help us build some some deeper accountability and and solidarity and and um, you know community power into into the online economy. Wonderful. Would you mind giving a brief introduction uh, to platform cooperativism? We'll get to some of the kind of more nuanced uh, uh, kind of equity arrangements maybe later. But I think that for an idea that's been around for some time and you've been a very vocal champion of um, that particular movement, it would be nice to introduce people to it. Yeah, so the idea is just... uh uh, to take that old-fashioned cooperative model. Um, uh, these are businesses that are owned and governed by the people that use them, whether they're workers or consumers or, or other businesses. Um, you know, this is a, a long-standing uh, kind of structure of doing business uh, with examples from, you know, rural farmer cooperatives all over the U.S. and in much of the world to mm-hmm. um, the Visa credit card system, which was initially formed as a cooperative and, uh, wow. and, and, you know, everything in between from your local food co-op and, you know, the house I lived in in college to, um, uh, you know, to, to, uh, you know, major new initiatives, uh, exploring how to, how to use data. Um, and, uh, around 2014, 2015, uh, I started working with a colleague at the new school, um, in New York, Trevor, Trevor Schultz, who had coined this term platform cooperativism while I was working as a reporter and was, um, identifying projects out there that were trying to do the sharing economy with shared ownership and governance. You know, they kind of didn't get the message that um, the sharing was only supposed to be skin deep and, mm-hmm. and um, the VCs were supposed to be in charge. Um, and so we started bringing these folks together and uh, realized we had that kind of a movement on our hands. And so, you know, now, uh, you know, we're, we're immersed in the work of trying to figure out how to, how to make this option of, of economic democracy more available for a new generation of companies and projects and activists and, and entrepreneurs. I think sometimes when people think about co-ops, they think about kind of like humble, small scale structures. And I, I think like, I was listening to you on a podcast or something and you were talking about energy companies or um, electricity providers or like really large scale kind of infrastructural. A lot of banks, right? Co-ops, credit, credit unions and like. But it's in- not just like a humble necessarily, not that humble is bad, but that these things can really scale and be competitive at, at that kind of large scale. Yeah, they, they right? can they can when they have the appropriate um, uh, you know financing and infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. So it's you know it's worth noting, for instance, that like 
probably the only media company in the world that can compete with the reach of Facebook is Associated Press, you know, which which yep. claims to reach half the population of the world every day with its reports. Um, and this is, you know, it's very different from Facebook, though, actually, a century ago, people kind of feared the Associated Press in the same way that they fear <laughs> Facebook today. Um, and mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it's a cooperative owned by news organizations around the uh, around the United States, um, and uh, and and you know so it's a reminder you know that that we could have our media built on a different kind of basis. And and by the way, Associated Press, of course, is not particularly well known as a purveyor of fake news as Facebook is today. You know it. it mm-hmm. Is it's kind of accountability structure is part of what makes it so, um, uh, you know, so so uh, trustworthy and and mm-hmm. you know I, I remember uh, you know to talk about the the energy side you know being in Italy once and and uh, being in a seminar with uh, Stefano Zamani who's kind of the the most prominent cooperative scholar along with his 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 wife Vera Zamani in Italy and um, he's you know he was talking about all the great things that co-ops can do and. You know, he's he's a leader in the in the very vibrant Italian cooperative um, scene. And he said, but one, you know, there's some things cooperatives are never going to be able to do, like, um, you know, run nuclear power plants. And, you know, I kind of, you know, stopped and said, well, actually, in the United States, uh, you know, we do have cooperatives that own nuclear power plants. Um, Mm. And that's because starting in the 1930s, um, the government intentionally enabled cooperatives to access um, financing just like other kinds of businesses can um, if they were solving rural electrification problems. So when we create a system that enables democratic uh, business to to prevail um, and, and to be possible and to and to access capital, then yeah, it can do anything anybody else can do. Uh, the problem is we basically um, we've basically straitjacketed our economic democracy and said, you can only do this in very, very specific ways. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you mentioned credit unions or the rural electric co-ops. Um, and they've, every time we've done that, it's been by and large, very successful. Um, but it's, it's as if like when venture capital was invented or, or the public corporation, um, the law said, but you can only do this if you're doing these five things. Right. And, yep. mm-hmm. and that's where cooperatives are, are kind of constrained right now. And it's a real um, hindrance of like imagination and vision um, and also a reminder of how dangerous these models can be to investor owners who have a lot to lose. Yeah, that's wild. I, I actually believe on our uh, we, we released a record a few years ago called Platform, um, which was in some ways in, in conversation with uh, the platform co-op movement. Um and I think we played a venue that in in Barcelona that was owned by a cooperative bank. Um, they have like exhibition spaces and venue spaces connected to it. I'm sure. fairly sure it was, oh. it was related to Mondragon. Yeah, oh, wow. I, yeah. I believe it. I mean, uh, th- that's a region that has a long history of of cooperative organizing and and development, and you know, it and th- these the, the the relics of this legacy are all around us. You know, I've got a hundred thirty billion dollar cooperative bank that's actually now currently you know in this region that's actually um, helping to fund my university's attempts to cope with coronavirus. So right, you know, yeah. the, the, the relics of this of this very radical legacy are all around us and we sometimes take them for granted. And so uh, you you mentioned there uh, the benefits of cooperative structures in terms of accountability. And I guess that kind of makes sense, right? Because when you have like a distributed uh, group of stakeholders in something, you basically have, you know, when you need to reach consensus over decisions um, that that implicate a large amount of people, um, that probably makes accountability a bit more feasible. Are there any other uh, long-term advantages to co-op structures that you want to articulate to people? Um, so, so the accountability is is really key. I mean, that that's the thing that that makes it all, um, you know, makes this such an appealing thing for a time where we have such deep accountability problems in the online economy. Uh, another feature, though, is um, is is where is. I'm not sure exactly how to put a label on it, but it's the ability of cooperatives to see opportunities where investors might not, you know, for instance, um, you know, when my grandparents were born, you know, my, my uh, grandmother on one side or on, on this is on my mother's side was born in Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, My grandfather was born in, um, in, in Northern Colorado on a farm. 
And um, hearing them talk about their childhoods, it's like it's like they lived on two different planets, you know, because at yeah. that time, um, in, investor owned utilities uh, were, were building electrical um, uh, uh, grids in cities like Lincoln, um, but they did not electrify about 90 percent of rural America like the farm that my grandfather grew up on. So he grew up with no electricity and, you know, in, in cold Colorado. And. Um, and, and this is, uh, and that place where he, he grew up didn't get electricity until that, uh, financing came around in the 1930s that enabled farmers to see, you know, to, to build their own electric cooperatives. And of course, within a decade, basically all of, of, of rural America had done that because farmers really saw the, the potential for themselves in electrifying their communities. And, you know, here in Colorado, for instance, those same co-ops ended up building a lot of the major ski resorts and things like that. So, so cooperatives have the ability to see the value of something that investors might not see yet. Um, and, and to see community value rather Rather than extraction value. So mm -hmm. um, another example of that is the organic food market, which uh, before Whole Foods, you know, uh, you know, the founder of Whole Foods worked at a food co-op um, because at the time, you know, that was where natural foods was happening, um, you know, in these cooperative spaces uh, where um, where people are, uh, you know, we're able to decide this is what's important to us. And so this is what we're going to do. And, and similarly for farmers on the supply side, um, companies like Organic Valley in the U.S., um, you know, which is a cooperative, uh, were, were the pioneers in enabling farms to um, make the investments necessary to get certified organic. So, so in, in constructing this, this two-sided market, you know, cooperatives were essential because they enabled uh, uh, you know, the participants in the market to say, hey, we think this is valuable, even though, like, at least for now, um, there may not be a whole lot of like margin in it, right? But sure, we want to yeah. create this market because we believe in this market and it's going to provide value to us and our families that the market doesn't know, yet know how to see. Um, so, yeah. so it's it's you know that ability to solve for um, for market failures in the existing uh, arrangement is is another superpower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, and I'd, I'd imagine also that the ability there to identify need. Uh, probably also leads to longer term sustainability, right? Yeah, yeah, and and need that doesn't just um, isn't just reducible to financial opportunity, um, yeah. but need in terms of like, hey, these are you know this is a broader range of of needs we as a community have, um, and and so our cooperative you know is is going to see those needs in a way that an investor owned company might not. One, one other superpower is the ability, and this is kind of more of a kind of legal thing is is the ability to um, take investment from ordinary people. So, uh, yep. you know, in, in the U.S., for instance, um, it's for pretty good reasons uh, uh, illegal for for most people to invest in early stage startups um, yep. because it's it would expose them to a lot of risk and they don't have the capacity to um, uh, in many cases to really evaluate that risk um, it, with certain exceptions. Um, cooperatives enable people to um, you know to co-invest in a common project. Um, and, and, you know, we're seeing, you know, we've seen in the, in the kind of blockchain and, and, um, you know, uh, uh, coin offering sprees over the last few years that there's a lot of appetite for, um, enabling regular folks to like get involved in, in super powering early stage startups. And, and, you know, yeah. this is something that co-ops have been doing for a long time, you know, famously, um, you know, it's kind of the original crowdfunding, like the, um, REI, the, the, um, you know, the sporting mm -hmm. equipment company started out because like a couple of people in Seattle wanted to get this really sweet German ice axe, you know, and, and they couldn't just <laughs> order one, you know, so, cause there wasn't, you know, Alibaba or Amazon. So they, they had to order them in bulk. So they just teamed up and, and basically crowdfunded, but because, you know, there wasn't Kickstarter, then they crowdfunded with a cooperative and, and that had the bonus, unlike Kickstarter of giving them ownership and governance power over the thing that they were creating. That's really interesting. I feel like in some ways it's kind of filling in where the state would in some ways traditionally um, have a role or at least, you know, maybe it shows the kind of differences between European governance and American governments, because a lot of the things that you're describing are things that the, the state here in Germany 
would invest in or would there would be some sort of kind of like state solution to some of these things. So I wonder how you see, um, yeah, I mean, I guess co-ops are much more flexible and much faster. How you see that kind of relationship between the state and um, kind of political engagement and then the kind of independence of a co-op? Yeah, they have a lot to do with each other. And, and sometimes it's just it is a matter of like, you know, political culture. For instance, um, Canada solved the rural electrification problem primarily through publicly owned infrastructure, uh, whereas um, in the United States, that was kind of a, a no go, um, you know, even in the in the New Deal period. Um, the Roosevelt and the Democrats had to kind of fight tooth and nail for every public program and, and um, relying on co-ops rather than publicly owned uh, energy infrastructure was a, um, you know, was a kind of, was something that was more palatable. Uh, and, and in a sense there, you know, it was, it was a kind of in between uh, the way it was, the, the way that project was structured, you know, same with, with banking, you know, we didn't end up with postal banking or widespread um, state public banks, but we did end up with the credit union system. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I think, I think there is a way in which this kind of model um, ha- has been, you know, has been kind of part of the American compromise between state and market. At the same time, a lot of other countries have have done this at large scale. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, in some places like in British colonies, for instance, like India and Kenya, some of the largest co-ops in the world and most powerful ones are there. And they were really part of like the racist colonial system initially. Mm-hmm. And then they got kind of translated into, you know, post-colonial nationalist systems that were very state controlled. Um, and, you know, and, and states at different times have tried to control co-ops um, that happened in Italy under fascism. And so after World War II, um, uh, the, the independence and autonomy of, of cooperatives was was inscribed actually into the Italian constitution. Um, and, and then later, you know, when Italy, like many other countries in the 70s, 80s, 90s, was was. Um, uh, privatizing public services, particularly care services, you know, like home health care and that sort of thing. Um, it ended up using cooperatives to do that um, and developed a, a really innovative new model called the social cooperative uh, to accomplish that. So, there, so in every place, there's, you know, there's a different story about the relationship between these two, uh, between the state and, and the cooperative movement. Uh, one way or another, you know, it's as with any kind of business, you, you need to have um, an infrastructure to enable this kind of business to, to occur. Um, and, and, uh, and in many cases, we kind of, um, we, we, we do so much to prop up our investor-owned um, economy, um, and then we do so little to prop up economic democracy. And then we say, oh, look, the, the investor-owned stuff is doing great. Um, that yes. must be the way to go. So, um, and, and as a result, uh, cooperatives have just been kind of erased from a lot of people's consciousness um, uh, to the point where even many large cooperatives don't even you know, identify as cooperatives, you know, um, that grandfather I mentioned ended up becoming CEO of a national multi-billion dollar purchasing cooperative. And, <laughs> and, you know, I never knew that it was a cooperative until long after he died when I was working a book on a book about it. Um, his family didn't know, you know, they just didn't, it wasn't good old American <laughs> capitalism. So they didn't talk about it. Wow. That's wild. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's funny because actually, I mean, in in a parallel conversation, have you ever heard of the Northeast Investment Cooperative? Yeah, yeah. I don't know much about it. But yeah, it's pretty cool. I mean, for, for the for those who don't know, it's basically it's a it's a bunch of uh, people in I believe somewhere in the Minneapolis area, um, and the whole idea is that they pull together funds and then collectively you can basically petition them to invest in properties and businesses to re- rejuvenate downtowns, which is really funny, right? Cause it's like, again, as you, you guys were saying, it's kind of like in some cases this would, this would be seen to be the role of the state, but in a sense they've kind of got the jump on it and they're taking matters into their own hands. And so the idea being quite n- not dissimilar to kind of like a DAO formation or like some of the Gitcoin stuff that maybe we'll touch on a bit later um, where you can say, okay, I think that opening a coffee shop downtown would bring more foot traffic and ultimately benefit everybody's businesses and everybody's home, you know, home valuation or whatever. Will you all stump up to get me set up? And invariably they do. Um, and it seems like these kind of models, you know, 
as you've characterized it, of being able to kind of identify need and then collectively invest in a more prosperous kind of local future, um, what well, well, local and 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 beyond a, a future, just seem really really sensical. Um, yeah, it's 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 a it's a it's a it's a, it's a very very cool idea. And so to to, to transfer um, this over a little bit, so long before the days of of tokenization, correct me if I'm wrong, but did you not try and uh, uh, try and petition that Twitter give um, give uh, cooperative ownership to uh, to the, to its users? Yeah, so uh, the, starting in 2016, um, I was part of a group that um, that. Uh, uh, was watching how did some discussions in the news that Twitter might be sold to a, a large company who's having some cash flow problems and and um, and this you know really uh, kind of disturbed me. I, I, I've been working as a journalist for a long time and particularly fell in love with Twitter during the Arab Spring um, when it was a way to kind of get uh, a, a ground eye view at the uh, what was going on in Tahrir Square and uh, and. So the idea that this was just a commodity that could be bought and sold was kind of this shocking reminder of, of how capitalism works. And, and so I, I made a call in an article in The Guardian um, for, you know, what if Twitter were owned by its users? And, and uh, you know, a bunch of people kind of responded to that and got excited about it. We ended up um, uh, realizing in our community we had enough Twitter stock to actually make a shareholder proposal. And we mm-hmm. did that. And... Um, you know, got have got some votes at uh, the company's annual meeting, and wow. um, and uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, it got a lot of attention for it, and and I think put the idea of you know cooperatively owned platforms on the map for a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. which was really you know as much as we expected to be able to accomplish in that in that round. Um, but the you know the crazy thing is is you know at the time. Twitter, um, you know, tried to get the SEC to, you know, rule out the idea as preposterous and so forth. Um, just a couple of years later, Uber and Lyft and Airbnb go to the SEC and say, mm-hmm. we want to share equity with our users, right? <laughs> um, and please allow us to do this. So, so just within a couple of years, um, this idea goes from being crazy um, uh, uh, to being to being something that these big companies actually wish they could do. And uh, I think that's just a signal of how of how sane all of this is, you know, and how this is, I I mean, as insane as as these large, you know, investor owned corporations are, even they can see that, you know, aligning incentives with with their users and their community and and aligning accountability is in their best interest. You know, we're seeing Facebook develop this new um, oversight board and taking all these little, you know, uh, flawed baby steps. But in, in each case, you know, there's this indication that they see you know that this is for the long-term health of the of the ecosystem as a whole and one way or another they have to figure out how to bend capitalism to enable them to to build in some genuine accountability or else everything's going to explode yeah that's really funny it's it yeah i I feel like that happen happens quite often i mean wasn't twitter's origins as a a a protest platform um i thought it was like an office chat no, 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 because they had, like, Twitter was a bunch of different things before it be- became Twitter. Oh, really? Yeah, and there's documentation that someone had basically built an app for people to communicate at protests. Oh. Um, and then they threw that in the pool On, while like, they were thinking network. about, yeah, while they are thinking about pivoting. And they were like, yeah, why don't we do this? So it seems like they, they like accepting ideas from protesters. They just want to have uh, claim those ideas as their own. Um, <laughs> that would be. Well, that, I mean, that's a pattern that we've seen a lot, you know, in Silicon Valley, especially about 10 years ago, you know, where you saw a lot of these platforms aligning themselves with, um, you know, with the Arab Spring and these protest movements. But but it's it's, um, it, you know, you see where the where the shifts happen you know for instance i was once had the opportunity to meet the um you know one of the early engineers at twitter who was there in those early conversations and and you know he said he had he had followed that campaign and said you know that was act that was really what we were trying to do um mm-hmm. uh in his his version of it was that they uh originally had the opportunity to create a federated network um mm-hmm. Uh, where you know other people could host their own services and 
connect them up to Twitter and control their own data. And yeah. it was kind of a business decision at the last minute to change course. It was you know, just important to recognize this was not a technical decision. It was a business decision yeah. Um, yeah. because of how the, you know, what the business needs were perceived of at the time as at the time. And, and, you know, actually now, uh, you know, in recent, in, in the last year, Jack Dorsey has um, publicly said he's exploring, you know, how to make Twitter into a more federated network. So it's yep, kind of yep, come yep. full circle and, and yep. um, people are recognizing that, that, you know, it, again, you, you kind of, you know, this stuff, is, this idea of user control and, and accountability is, is, is kind of healthy in the long term. I think that makes a lot of sense. I want to quote you here because I think this quote is really, really wonderful um, and quite clarifying. Um, to move over to, to thinking about platforms and kind of like the mythology of democratizing or democratization. Um, so you, you say here, when tech people talk about democratizing something like driving directions or online banking, what they really mean is access. Access is fine, but it's just access. It's a drive-through window, not a door. Access is only part of what democracy has always entailed, alongside real ownership, governance, and accountability. Democracy is a process, not a product. Um, and I, I, one that really, really resonates with me, and I think it's a beautiful, it's be- beautifully phrased. Um, second, it's quite, it, it's it's really relevant to us as musicians, actually, because um, this topic comes up in music a great deal, uh, 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 where you know. It's inarguable in the sense that the platform economy of the 10s has increased access, but in its wake, it has also kind of deterred or or uh, or displaced institutions that previously would have given musicians or anybody for that matter some kind of purchase or stake in the future of their field. Um, and so in a sense, while it has democratized access, it has also in fact created like an opaque, centralized, and incredibly undemocratic um, uh, 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 control base, um, and I think that your your framing of this really, really gets to the to the heart of that issue and helps us to maybe demystify a little bit um, this kind of mythology that that in fact these tools have you know have empowered people uh, uh, more more than they more than they actually have. Yeah, no, it, it's I mean that that recognition was really kind of important for me actually to you know to to notice that um uh that the word democratizing democracy had been had been kind of rewritten in the tech economy and um and and you know i had kind of fallen victim for it too like like so many other people you know and and you kind of you say oh these people say they like democracy so they must you know like everything else that we associate with democracy and um you know same way that like um elon musk said that you know remember once he he, he said uh, uh you know when, when we when we colonize the moon and mars um you know, we're going to, it's going to be run by a democracy, but he won't let his workers organize. You know, it's, it's like the democracy (laughs) right in front of you that challenges you or holds you accountable is, 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 you know, uh, a no go, but, um, but you know, you'll still use the word as part of your vision. And, um, and, and I, I often kind of find it's helpful to use the method as a media critic and activist, you know, just like looking back a few generations and, um, yep. say, what if like, you know, maybe this isn't true, but what if technology actually hasn't changed everything? You know, what if yep. the yep. basic, yep. uh, patterns of human, uh, you know, life and dynamics and power, um, are still at play in roughly the same ways that they have been in the past. And that like, if we just apply some lessons from the past, uh, about these things to the present, we'll actually see something that we wouldn't otherwise see. And, and there you recognize you doing that, you recognize a ton because, um, you know, as kind of encapsulated by the, you know, the famous uh, John Perry Barlow Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace, the kind of like guiding ideology of of tech culture in Silicon Valley in particular has been everything is different because of our technology. Um, yeah. And and in fact, that that ideology really disguises uh, a lot of truth, which is, you know, stuff we're rediscovering now, like, oh, actually, old antitrust law design for railroads is pretty good for dealing with Amazon because 
because basically the same yep. patterns are repeating themselves. Um, or, yep. you know, if we're dealing with privacy, like, wait a second, you know, we did this with phone companies. Like that's why phone companies can't listen in on your calls and send you relevant um, uh, robocalls or something, you know, but Google can read your email and send you yep. like, and, and feed you relevant ads. Like, you know, how did that, how did, how did the thing that was not okay a generation or two ago suddenly become okay when it's basically the same thing? Yep, yep, yep. This is why I love reading um, people like Ada Palmer or listening to her talk. She's a historian and sci-fi um, author. And because she's a historian, you know, she's always like, if you want to know what's going to happen in the future, just look at the past. It just keeps, you know, human behavior, human nature. Of course, things change, but yeah. like a lot of the um, kind of like deeply seated kind of um, yeah, think, uh, ways, ways that we organize kind of tend to repeat themselves. Well, and it also, it also, uh, it, it feels, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking more specifically. So in our realm, we have the problem of Spotify, right? Which perfectly kind of encapsulates this, this dilemma between like quite credible claims that they have democratized access to things. Um, and the, the, the flip side of that kind of Faustian bargain, which is that now we have a fully opaque, unelected, kind of centralized uh, arbiter of the future of music um, that in, in, in my mind at least has a very, very simplistic understanding of the problems that face well, musicians. Well, they get to right? dictate the price of all music. Well, yeah, exactly. But, but, <laughs> but it's also, it's one of these things where like simplistic, simplistic, a simplistic understanding of something leads to simplistic uh, solutions, right? And, and one kind of common critique of people, particularly kind of uh, Valley style, uh, tech people ultimately is that they are quite ahistorical, right? Um, I remember recently, I forget, I forget who this was leveled at, or actually I kind of remember who it is and I just don't want to mention their name, <laughs> but uh, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of Valley adjacent people basically reinvented Marxism. They're like, <laughs> we need a, we need a field of study that studies, you know, the impl the economic and, and social implications of technology. Right. And they were like, we need to invent this thing. And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, this is kind of, this is kind of, uh, 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 yeah, it, it, it's all happened before. And maybe maybe what you're doing isn't quite as novel as, as, as the marketing language is, would suggest. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you see this over and over. And, and in, the, in the case of music, I mean, again, it's it's a it's a reiteration of the kind of monopoly monopolizing and price fixing that gave rise to the to the early cooperative movements around the world in rural communities, you know, which was mm -hmm. where you had a geographical um, distinction, as we really do today, too. Too, between the places where capital is concentrated and the places where um, monopoly power is extended from those concentrations, and and you know we're we're, we're seeing a kind of reiteration of that, and um, you know a lot of patterns repeating themselves, even down to things about um, you know in, in kind of colonial patterns with raw materials and processing and this kind of this kind of dilemma about where value gets created and where it is extracted and where labor yeah. is. I mean, you know, a, a lot of these patterns, it, you know, if you, if you look at them, right, really do repeat themselves. And in, in the case of, of music, on the one hand, this is a site of, you know, very, um, it, it's kind of an early adopter site for a lot of these patterns because it's, you know, it's where creative people lurk. It's, it's also, yep. um, you know, it's a it's a kind of cultural zone of influence, and um, and it's it's a space that people really care about, and so they're willing to try something that feels different and new. And so, on the one hand, you know, we see it as the as you know, it's kind of the the opening salvo of of. Um, peer-to-peer -peer file sharing and that sort of thing, as well as being the, um, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of beachhead for the, the iPhone, you know, which started as an iPod, uh, started as a place to listen to music and then, and then spun out into everything else. Uh, but, uh, uh, the, at the same time, uh, arts and music have been really the, the leading edge, the vanguard of, of the cooperative movement that's arising now. Um, you know, when I first started going on getting working on this stuff, the most developed kind of new wave platform co-op before there was a term was called Stocksy United. And this was photographers, um, mm -hmm. you know, owning their own stock photo platform. Um, now in music, we've got several, um, 
you know, several projects out there. For instance, Ampled is a new one that's kind of a Patreon co-owned by musicians and community members. Resonate was a streaming music uh, project with some crypto mixed in. And, um, I was and, on the board of Resonate, FYI. Oh, okay. Good to know. Good to know. I, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I listened to it. I, I, I wish, you know, I was a little more uh, active now, but it, I, uh, you know, I actually found it. I never ended up getting a Spotify thing and actually really and ended up appreciating the music I got to know through Resonate. So that's awesome. Uh, thank I know you that for they're, your they're, re, there. they're they're re they're they're reconfiguring everything. So it, yeah. it, it will endure. It will it will it will it will reappear. Good, good. I mean, it's really, I, I like late at night, you know, when I have some boring work to do, put it, there's nothing more pleasurable to me than turning on resonate and just seeing what, seeing what I'd encounter. It's, um, it's different than turning on Spotify and getting kind of the, um, whatever, whatever kind of algorithmic hit, hits arrive. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, 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 it felt much more like a community and, and, uh, and, you know, it's it's just an, it's just an example of how artists are often leading the way in this in Europe too. Um, the the a lot of the kind of coolest responses to the gig economy um, have arisen out of longstanding artist communities. So, for instance, um, Smart, which uh, stands for or stood for not anymore, but stood for in French, uh, Société Mutuelle des Artistes, and and that was you know a, a group that formed among artists who had you know uh, irregular incomes and they needed some kind of back end infrastructure, and so they built that and then like you know 10 years later they realized oh wait everybody needs this now so so they kind of pivoted into this general gig economy co-op or or um doc cervasi in italy which emerged out of the music scene there as kind of a co-op for you know people working on on music uh uh, sets and and you know stagehands and musicians and and then kind of translates to a broader arts economy uh and and in the u.s you know now uh i've been working a little bit with a a group trying to propose a a model for the gig economy in california that really resembles a lot uh of what uh the hollywood system looks like where you have people Mm -hmm. going from gig to gig so again and again we see artists in the vanguard uh, uh, of anticipating and responding to the crises that are um, that soon become much more widespread. Hmm. Long may it continue. Yeah. And- did did you correct, correct me if I'm wrong? Did you coin the phrase um, "exit to community"? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, for whatever that's worth, um, <laughs> you, I think it's worth a lot because I, think, I think it's really clear. <laughs> yeah, can you can you just explain that to our listeners and tell us how you came up with that? Yeah, yeah. If it's clear to you, you're probably a little a little you're in a bubble. Um, you know, because when most people <laughs> when most people hear exit, um, you know, they think of like running out of a burning building or something but, <laughs> into um, the loving arms of your community. It works, it works both ways. <laughs> yeah, but but it's. Um, you, you know, it's really the term really only makes sense to people um, in the startup community. And that's exactly who I intended it for. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I wanted to kind of reframe the platform co-op ambition for people for people already operating in the startup infrastructure. Um, mm-hmm. ra- you know, recognizing that there was a lot of really good stuff happening with startups. And, you know, to me, it became a strategic imperative to think less about how can we, you know, totally reinvent the wheel, but more, how can we graft, you know, the good ones out of that yep. Yep. Um, yep. hamster wheel and into something that they really want. And the idea is, you know, uh, the standard model for startups, you know, are not designed to, to grow into you know, new companies. Their startups are temporary organizations designed to either um, figure out what they're going to metamorphize into or fail. And mm-hmm. um, if they figure out, if they find a way in the market, then they also get stopped and they get bought either into um, a bigger company that's an acquisition exit or they get um, uh, much more rarely they they end up with an IPO they go public on on the stock market mm-hmm. and in one way either way the startup is over after that happens it's a different company <laughs> at that point mm-hmm. and um, and that is you know and so for anybody working in startups the word exit is just like this this like weight hanging over you or this or this this shining light that you're that you're uh, maneuvering toward 
um, you know, driving your rocket ship toward because it's it's a um, it is the whole purpose. It's the it's the end and destination for every startup. And um, and so it seemed like a really critical opportunity to say, okay, what if we add another exit option? You know, which isn't to say the other ones are entirely bad or don't have their their purpose. But what if we had another option for for another round range of companies uh, where the the community the startup has built becomes the new steward and and kind of buys out the the earlier investors and one way or another becomes you know the the destination and um, this is you know is exciting because on the one hand there are a bunch of startups over the years I keep, I've kept encountering successful founders who've been like I hated the options I had uh, about yeah, what yeah. I could do with this awesome company I built you know one great example is Scott Heiferman the founder of Meetup.com who who would love nothing more than to turn Meetup into a user owned co-op and has actually mm-hmm. you know tried to do that um, but the systems just aren't there to support it um, and then um, and then there's a question of what kinds of startups don't we have because we don't have this option and that's really yeah, where yeah. my partnership with um, the zebras unite community has come in which is a network of, of founders you know founded by women and people of color who um, feel like the system just is not working for the kind of things they want to build and mm-hmm. um, and so they've really gravitated to the exit to community idea because they recognize, hey, if we have viable community exit models, we can do the kind of startup that yep. otherwise would never get investment um, yep. uh, under current uh, circumstances. And these are really crack founders. You know, these are totally, these are the most hustling, like you know, amazing f- founders I've I've encountered in my in my time working with startups. And so, you know. Uh, it's just been such a pleasure to work with, with, mm-hmm. with these you know, like incredibly competent people who see you know, community exit, not as this like beautiful ideal, you know, that, that they want to wrap an idea around, but they see it as like a necessity for trying to create the value that they want to create. Well, I can imagine it's also incredibly competitive. So, so for a little bit, actually um, it, a few years ago, so are you familiar with a guy called Trent McConaughey? No. Um, so he, amongst other things, he started the, uh, a company called Ocean Protocol, which is kind of like a data, oh, yeah, yeah. A, a, a database thing. Um, and he wrote a, an article, this was probably about 2016, 2017, called Tokenizing the Enterprise. Um, and it's funny, around about that time, so Trent and I were working on a project related to music and it just so happened that some of the people in the consortium were were newly newly very wealthy crypto people and it's funny because it reminded me of your twitter story in a sense because um at the time there were stories about soundcloud's impending demise right because soundcloud not dissimilar to twitter in a sense right had become this utility right where it was clearly playing an important significant role in people's lives and yet they couldn't figure out the business model or perhaps more importantly, they couldn't figure out the business model sufficient to kind of a, a, a business model that wouldn't uh, kind of encroach upon the functionality of the platform that people really enjoyed. So, And just for context, I mean, SoundCloud was kind of a, a really important platform for people's music careers. At absolutely. That time. And also you have this kind of case where unlike Twitter, right? Like if you've spent years accumulating an audience on there and the platform was all of a sudden to disappear, that would be really, really devastating for a lot of people because it's not like those servers get maintained afterwards, right? Like all that history disappears. Um, And so at the time, uh, based on, on, on Trent's recommendation, we actually put together kind of a proposal saying, well, what if you, you know, what if you would uh, 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 tokenize a uh, 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 SoundCloud? The only reason I, the only reason I bring that up is, is to maybe uh, further complement this kind of exit to community idea, because in the case of SoundCloud, what we've seen instead is all the founding team. Now I saw this the other day, they've started a, an e-bike company. So pretty much everyone who had the original idea for SoundCloud presumably has been bought out or maybe hold some some stock, but they're focused on something entirely different now. They brought in a new CEO from, I believe he used to be at Vimeo or something, with the intention being that they're going to transform SoundCloud into some kind of professional services system that 
there's no dem- demonstrable demand for, right? But it's just that these habits of continually raising money and continually changing yourself in order to be able to turn a, a, cra- a crazy profit lead you in that direction. And yet you have millions of people who, if you were to ask them, say that the service works, right? Um, and so this kind of exit to community model seems to really, really be uh, 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 applicable in this particular case. Um, and, and you could argue that Twitter is somewhat the same, right? Like what would Twitter have to do? Um, how much more would you have to eat into the common utility, utility functionality, utilities uh, functionality that every Twitter user enjoys um, before Twitter is no longer what, what people want from Twitter, right? Yeah, it's, it was a, uh, it, it was that same kind of feeling that that you know helped motivate me with the Twitter idea, was, which was like, "Hey, this is working for us." Um, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> weird. Why why isn't it working for for Wall Street? And, um, but it does, you know, it does point back to the idea that uh, you know a co op does need to have a sound business, and if it doesn't, it can run. Um, into uh, a number of risks, and you know, including just straight up kind of bankruptcy and failure, or yep. um, can become very vulnerable for an acquisition or um, demutualization, which means uh, it becomes no longer owned by its community. For instance, yep. the the Canadian um, kind of equivalent of REI um, it just announced uh, in a very kind of sketchy way it is demutualizing because of financial issues um mm-hmm. you know we just lost a um you know an employee-owned brewery here in colorado not because it was doing poorly but because the uh, um employee ownership model just didn't have the capital access that the, that, it, that the company felt it needed to succeed in the competitive market um and so that's a reason why we need to make sure that there's infrastructure to enable these models to be really viable. But it's mm-hmm. it's it's true that that um, a co-op can get by on you know thin margins and um, and can can succeed when uh, other businesses might see it as as uh, a failure because it's meeting its community's needs. Um, in that way, it can be more like a a nonprofit or. Uh, or something like that. But um, it, that, this also runs into, I think, a real deep dilemma with co-ops that uh, I think is one of the major challenges facing the new generation, um, which is that, you know, a, a, the purpose of an investor-owned company is to exceed um, the market's expectations, right? That's that's what every incentive drives for is, is you think we're worth this much? Well, we're going to convince you we're worth this much and we're going to prove it. And, uh, and the people who who buy into that idea are going to really benefit. Um, for co-ops, the purpose is to meet member needs. That's how all the incentives are appointed. And so the result is sometimes, especially older co-ops with, you know, a few generations after the founding generation um, end up, you know, becoming extremely cautious and extremely unwilling to take risks because, hey, we're meeting members' needs and anything we do that threatens that core purpose um, is scary and, and we're not going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Um, yeah. so, so I think there's a real need to, especially in areas like technology, where we need highly competitive co-ops, um, we need co-op innovation and risk-taking. Um, I, I think we need to figure out how to get the incentives in place so that uh, there are good reasons for people to engage in that and to recognize that there is a real um you know, there, there is something about the VC model that the co-op model can't really um, compete with, even if it had capital access um, or that it's really disadvantaged for it, that the VC model is just totally supercharged for risk and, um, you know, and, and kind of and kind of conquest in a way that, you know, yep. it's always going to be tricky for co-ops. Can you think of any? Can you think of an example of either an existing platform co-op or or an experiment that maybe addresses that? Because I think that is actually a really great point, right? Like it, it's it's also really nice um, to concede that you know these models, even though you can poke holes in them, 
certain this incentive structures do actually kind of work, even though you might be like holding someone over over a flame. <laughs> Maybe that's the incentive. So, the VC model. Yeah, the VC model or, or just the, like the speculative investment model, right? Of like the incentive is that you're in it to make money, right? Ultimately, or you're in it to make somebody else money. Um, even though I, I, I can also see so many holes in that, it quite clearly, it quite clearly is a motivator. Um, can you think of any ways... Or, or of any examples that 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 maybe might prove competitive with that. So um, one example that comes to mind is you know I had um, you know a conversation about this with uh, um, uh, team members with the Arismendi network in in um, in the Bay Area, which is a network of bakeries, and now getting into uh, oh, the. Yeah. the uh, uh, construction business and and they have a, an arrangement where they really see their mission as um, creating as many good jobs as possible and th- that's a really cool thing because you know one of the historical um, you know this goes back to the late 19th century um, kind of critiques of worker-owned cooperatives um, has has long been that they could become they create little capitalists and they create incentives for the workers to kind of hoard the benefits and um, what what they did in in, in this case uh, was to create a kind of bonus structure for whenever new jobs were created so every worker has an incentive to see more jobs created in the business and that's just a kind of commitment the business makes that every time we add to the pool, everybody sees the benefit in a really tangible way. And so that means like there's going to be much less likelihood that people are going to say, um, oh, I don't know if, if we should bring on that new person because that would mean that my dividends are going to get it cut down and all this stuff. Um, no, they, they've made they've made an intentional effort to structure the, the incentives so that um, growth in terms of employment opportunities specifically um, is is core to the incentive structure of the participants in the business. I think that kind of thing is a, uh, you know, really powerful way that co-ops are, you know, and the, and the nice thing is that that's the kind of thing that um, an investor-owned corporation probably wouldn't do because absolutely um, because it has incentives. Its incentives, you know, are always built around the stock price. You know, it's like mm-hmm. that's how investor pay is structured. Increasingly, you know, even though a lot of evidence suggests it's a bad idea, um, it it. Um, you know that that's always where the alignment happens. But co-ops have the have the autonomy to say, first of all, what is our mission? You know, what is the thing we want to be optimizing for? As an engineer would say, mm-hmm. and then second, okay, how do we build incentives toward that mission into our business? And so, um, on the one hand, this is kind of a liability that I've I've um, articulated earlier. But on the other hand, co-ops are actually better equipped than other kinds of businesses potentially to um you know to counter that liability that's really cool i also quite like the idea of kind of uh uh taking the job creator title away from <laughs> <laughs> from the entrepreneur yeah well well exactly because yeah because because as you say it's like in actuality you know these often shareholder based companies um or or you know uh, companies that the the ipo i mean ultimately their goal is to reduce as much cost as possible in order to produce some, to, to produce as much profit, and so jobs will get lost in that process. So, kind of, yeah, it feels very politically powerful to steal the kind of job creator title away. Yeah, well, the, it's already it's already gone. I mean, the, the, uh, I, mean any, any I guess that, it got wiped uh, out recently. Any claim that the you know that the large investor-owned companies have to you know to be job creation engines, you know, it's just the plain economic data, um, you know, does away with that. But it, it you know, there is a lot about um, you know, for instance. Questions around automation, questions around um, uh, you know the kind of externalities of, of of technology that you know that that just aren't addressed. And and what, what we see too is in places where workers have power, like um, in you know Scandinavian manufacturing firms, you see a much more widespread embrace among workers of automation 
because they um, feel secure in their jobs mm-hmm, because yep, of yep. union contracts. And so um, they actually contribute to okay, the automation yeah. process rather than in the United States where workers have much more often when they have any class consciousness, you know, have sabotaged automation processes because they recognize it's their enemy and that it is the means of, mm-hmm. of putting them out of the job. Yeah, there's that amazing Norwegian comedian. I don't know. I can't remember his name now, but he did a whole uh, like co- talk. It was something like that. It was like a comedy sketch about how in Norway, it's the easiest place in the world to become a billionaire. And he talks about how strong union structures encourage automation. So, you know, they're they're more than happy to, to yeah, to, to leave the bullshit jobs to the robots. Um, it was, yeah. But I wonder if we could switch gears for a second and just talk a little bit about governance, because I've heard you speak in the past about the difficulty of online, go- uh, online governance. And, um, one talk and specifically you were talking about how often, especially in the crypto universe, so much of the um, kind of technical systems are so fetishized. Um, but then in the background, you'll have like, you know, human written newsletters and telegram channels that are moderated often by, you know, female employees. And then those things kind of get pushed to the side for like the technical um, kind of automated system. Can you, so can you speak a little bit to uh, governance? Yeah, no, th- this has become kind of my growing obsession um, <laughs> in all this. And, you know, it's a nice way to keep one's eye on the, you know, the kind of political crises we're facing while not having to look at them. Uh, because, you know, I, if you, if you consider, um, you know, when I think positive, um, pro-democratic change has happened in in recent history. It's often been accompanied by vibrant social uh, uh, civil society, uh, a vibrant environment in which people are experiencing democracy in their everyday lives through their their local associations or you know their their affinity communities. And um, I've been realizing increasingly how uh, how poor are democratic practices in online communities ranging from, um, you know, crypto, um, experiments to just like Facebook groups or Reddit or, um, or email lists or, you know, pick your, pick your poison. Um, Mm -hmm. in, in none of these, do you see like basic sensible stuff like term limits or elected people in power or um, any sort of uh, direct accountability that the people in power have other than just like the, the anxiety about not scaring people away. Um, and an exit is really only, um, you know, only helpful to a point and, and just the total absence of these kinds of structures. And that includes in open source communities where um, people are contributing to software projects and, um, and there just is is not any direct accountability, and this is becoming mm-hmm. increasingly urgent, you know, both in crypto and non crypto projects, because we're seeing resources starting to come into open source in a way that we haven't before, you know, for mm-hmm. for you know in, in the the legacy of open source so far, um, we've kind of outsourced. Uh, resource provision and labor provision to either people's volunteer time or to companies. Um, And increasingly that's felt to people as untenable and unsustainable. And so open source projects are really starting to raise more money and manage more money on their own. And that means they have to, you know, they have to govern that and they have to do it responsibly. And so even, Mm -hmm. you know, weirdly companies like IBM and so forth are putting out these posts saying like, you know, open source projects really need to govern themselves, you know, and, and we just don't have the tools for that. And, and it's absolutely like a feminist issue too. You know, I, I've been studying this in the open source world for a while and trying to, for a while I've been thinking about like, why, what is the best way of understanding the arguments going on in open source around labor and ethics right now. And I ended up landing on like feminist economics as the clearest um, framework within which to understand it. And it's like all this stuff that makes no sense, all these debates that are like completely baffling the kind of old guard, um, very male open source elite, like make perfect sense if you just apply the most basic frameworks of, of feminist economic thought to 
um, to this um, to these problems, and you suddenly recognize, oh, there's a bunch of under um, uh, you know under resourced labor. There's a bunch of tyrannies of structurelessness. There's a bunch of like um, w- ways in which certain kinds of labor are being you know quote unquote feminized um, and thus devalued through this kind of gender hierarchy and this kind of hierarchy of labor. And um, you know, and suddenly it all kind of makes sense. And and uh, so you know, my my work now is really starting to steer toward how can we bring more kind of clarity and accountability into the kind of everyday life of our online platforms, you know, regardless of whether they're cooperatively owned yet or, or not. But, you know, also with the thought that if if we get more used to and more comfortable with gov- um, democratic governance in, you know, in our in our uh, immediate experience, then suddenly it becomes hopefully less scary if we consider doing it at the corporate level or beyond. Very cool. Wonderful. And so I want to be respectful of your time because we said we'd only go for about an hour. Um, But before we do go, I do want to ask you a little bit on the topic of governance about your MetaGov project, which I'm going to have to ask you to to explain for me because I only encountered it about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) But it sounds sounds very appropriate for what you were just discussing. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of the the answer to this that I'm I'm working on. You know, it's not the answer, but it's it's the the community I've come into. um, And it's uh, it's a. you know, this is the Meta Governance Project, and you can learn more at metagov.org. It's it's a group of people who, um, some of us come from a crypto background, like um, Primavera de Filippi, an old friend of mine who's who kind of brought me into this, or um, Seth Frey, who's who, or uh, Federica Carugati, who come from the um, the tradition of Eleanor Ostrom and and common pool resource governance. That's very much not crypto ish, um, mm-hmm. but but uh, you know, it's more about like how do we govern waterways and stuff like that. Um, How have people done this for thousands of years? And so we're kind of bringing these pieces together um, to try to envision what a um, governance layer for the internet could look like. Um, So we've been doing some, you know, kind of uh, initial um, conceptual work around that, as well as developing experiments. So like um, Amy Zhang, who's part of the group, um, develops this, is developing this tool called Policy Kit, um, that is um, that is kind of a, a, a an app that you could plug into Slack or or, or Reddit that would um, create like governance processes in order to do things on the platform. Like say you had to get a majority vote to um, change the name of a channel in Slack. You know this tool would enable you to um, you know to do that process. Um, in, in order to have and, and directly affect that outcome. Uh, and, you know, I've been working on this project called Community Rule, um, which is like a little uh, widget that um, a web app that um, is designed to allow people to kind of edit and construct their this, the, the structures of the governance of their communities and share them with each other and learn from each other. But the, the goal above all is, is to create, you know, something like a, a web standard or, um, you know, we're still kind of figuring out what, what form it, it takes, but to create a means by which people can iterate on and advance and easily adopt um, creative governance techniques um, in the same way that you might, you know, put an app on your phone or, or add a, a plug into a WordPress site um, and to create this kind of, this kind of um, explosion of, of creativity and governance that I think has been foreshadowed by the crypto world where, you know, it's the one place where I see people um, like really geeking out on like governance <laughs> techniques, but at the same time, you know, without, um, uh, assuming all of the the kinds of constraints that crypto actually uh, introduces, um, all the stuff around crypto economics and identity. There's just all this, all these problems you have to solve in crypto that turns out like most people and most communities really don't need to solve. And so, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. we're trying to make the problem as easy as possible um, while also, you know, generating solutions that, you know, we hope one day will be, you know, as comprehensive as possible and as, as expressible as possible to really um, become a means of, of, of representing and enacting, you know, the widest possible range of, you know, of, of governance strategies. Sounds wonderful. Well, before, before we, uh, before we let you go, we ask everybody the same question, which is, uh, what does inter- interdependence mean to you? Ooh, um. <laughs> <laughs> You're also allowed to like, 
uh, say something, say something uh, uh, snarky. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had Bruce Sterling on here, and he definitely wasn't having any of he that. He was definitely <laughs> the most snarky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I, I'd go in this direction, which is um, maybe it's a little more hierarchical than than interdependence, but. Um, you know, a, a kind of core metaphysic behind all this for me is is comes out of my my religious tradition, which is which is Roman Catholic. Which, um, and and in that, there's this idea of the the universal destination of goods, which is hmm. um, alluded to in the the title of my last book, Everything for Everyone. Um, basically the way it goes is it's a three-step thing. You know, it's the, the idea is, um, first, you know, God gave the world to everybody. And so, um, it's everyone's right. But there was the fall and, you know, it doesn't, you know, human nature and there's all these like caveats. And so we kind of need private property in order to like, um, be, the stewards that we want to be of, of the world in some way or another. But there's this third step, which says, um, actually that private property is never final. You know, we always have to remember and work toward that original truth, which is our, you know, our shared inheritance of the earth and the fact that, that everything, you know, in, of creation is for everyone of all, for all living things. Uh, and, you know, all things, you know, everything is for itself. And, um, and, and that demands this kind of re-recognition of what we owe one another. Um, this is something that Pope Francis, you know, really underscored a lot in his most recent encyclical Fratelli Tutti, you know, siblings mm -hmm. all, and, um, and really, um, uh, is a, you know, is a powerful call to us to remember, especially at a time of, of incredible division, um, and a time where, where kind of property is being applied to new spaces, new terrains from water to data, uh, that we uh, really recognize and remember that, um, you know, that crucial universality of, of the, and, and commonness of our, um, of our kind of shared inheritance. So that's, you know, it, maybe it's, it's, it's more of a kind of, um, you know, it's more simplistic in a way than, than the con a concept like interdependence. But, but to me, that is the kind of basis upon which I, I understand uh, the meaning of that word. It's really nice to get a spiritual take on this question. That's a first for us. And it's definitely going to spark an interesting conversation with my mom later. So I'm, I'm grateful for that one. <laughs> Good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I aim to, <laughs> to, to motivate <laughs> conversations with one's parents. <laughs> yeah, Holly's mom listens to every single episode. It's very wonderful. It also reminded me as well, we had um, a professor guy standing on one of the first episodes and he spoke very beautifully about the Charter of the Forest. Yeah. Um, which I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with. I wasn't before before he raised it. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a really beautiful uh, beautiful reflection on interdependence, and I'm really grateful that you uh, that you gave it. Um, Thanks so, so much for being so generous with your time. Yeah, this really, has thank you. Been a really great overview of your ideas, and I just hope that our listener, listeners will then dig deeper. They will. Yes. I, I will make it. I will make it. <laughs> make it so. Um, and uh, and yeah, and uh, 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 please, you know, if you ever come through Berlin, um, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for, for your questions and, and for, you know, for your preparation. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It's our pleasure. And yeah, have a wonderful day. I hope you stay warm. Thank you. Bye. Cheers, Nathan.